this is UCD Business Impact, a podcast series from UCD College of Business, Ireland's leading business school. And each week, we'll be joined by world-renowned academics from across the College of Business, as well as industry leaders, to discuss the most compelling business issues facing Ireland and the world. Our experts each week will offer insight, spark curiosity, and challenge you to rethink how you do business in a changing world. I'm your host, Emmett Oliver, financial editor and journalist, and lecturer at New City College of Business. Now, you're very welcome to Business Impact. It's been a great few days for the country, wonderful weather. Great to see some of our hospitality businesses opening again. And also thanks to a lot of you for emailing in um, some of your messages about butter. Yes, butter. Uh, the last podcast with the CEO of Ornua was a real hit. Um, John Jordan, very interesting conversation. And I didn't know that so many of you had strong feelings about how Kerrygold butter should be deployed on your toast, etc. But thanks for the, <laughs> the comments and little snippets about that in the last podcast. So well done to all. Now, as indoor dining returns generally and the, the summer temperatures are hitting their peak, for many of us, I suppose, that side of the delivery driver coming up to our doorstep may become slightly less frequent. While you miss the food, you probably won't miss the social contact because for most of us, all that happens is a bag is placed on the doorstep and off goes the driver. There's probably not a whole lot of exchange apart from that. And most of us are only worried, it seems, about whether the pizza is hot enough or not. Now, maybe I'm being unfair, but I have a sense that a lot of us don't think too much about the working lives of those who deliver the food to our houses and apartments. A lot of people feel that there is a whole new generation of what they call the precariat um, that is existing. This is due to the casualization of employment where, you know, a whole new generation have no holiday pay, often no sick pay, and definitely no pension for certain. Now, a lot of us may not know about the workers, we know about the companies, of course. We can all name check Uber, Amazon, Deliveroo, of course. But there is a whole new generation of platform delivery companies as well. And in the research for this podcast today, I came across new companies I'd never heard of before. One was Glovo, another one was called Delivery Hero, and then there was two others called Walt and Bolt, which sounded more like something you'd get in a hardware store to me than than a new wave of digital innovation. But countries are examining this new form of employment. They are examining it critically. And Spain, for example, in recent weeks, has brought in a new law combating some of the worst abuses in this area. And we'll have to see how that works out over the next year or two. But can this form of employment ever be raised to the level of what we would call fair? Is there a sensible middle ground where gig workers and gig companies can both be accommodated within our modern digital economy? It's a big question, and on the podcast today, we won't get to all of this, but we're hoping to get to some of those questions and provide at least some of the answers to that. And my guest who's going to help me with this is Anne Keegan, who knows all about the gig economy, the working conditions, the companies, the business models, the part played by algorithms and all of this. And she is a professor of human resource management at UCD School of Business, has researched widely in this area and published and has worked and lectured in a number of other universities as well, all the time looking at HR practices and this whole world of the gig economy. So you're very welcome to the podcast, Anne. Thank you, Emmett. Uh, it's really, really nice to be here. Thanks for having me on. It's great to have you on. There's a lot in this subject. I know a lot of the media concentrated on it, the tech press are concentrating on it. You know, each country has very different sort of responses to it. Some are very advanced in regulating on it. Others, it's very much the Wild West, and we're only laying down the first sort of foundations of how this new form of working will evolve. So I understand anything we discuss today will be a little bit contingent. There's a lot more to come, and it's a very dynamic situation. So I want to put that little health warning in at the start. 
But if we kick off on, on the conversation today with just a little bit of the definitions, we hear this word gig economy. I was personally for many years in my journalism days a freelance worker. I'm sure a lot of our listeners have had periods of freelance employment either at the start of their career or in the middle and even some of them towards the end of their career. But we're talking about a slightly different thing here. So can you give us some idea for our listeners what is the gig economy in your perception? So the gig economy in, in and of itself is nothing new. We've always, as you said, had people who worked uh, freelance or part-time. I mean, the word freelancer goes back nearly 200 years. So in and of itself, gig work has been around a long time. And, and many people choose to set up their own business and uh, be independent contractors rather than employees. Um, the gig economy that I think many listeners might be more familiar with right now and um, which is kind of in the media more often now, it refers to something quite narrower. And here we're talking about people who are employed as independent contractors through what we call online labour platforms. So online labour platforms, it might be a term people are not that familiar with, but they all know I think everyone listening, companies like uh, Deliveroo, Uber, I mean, they are countless. We have Lyft, Instacart, uh, Fiverr, Freelancer, Upwork, Uber Eats, Up and Go. We have freelance uh, gig workers who work on platforms, walking dogs, minding children, cleaning homes, but also doing software engineering, graphic design and a whole host of other things. So the, the narrower thing and the, the platform enabled gig work, that's really, I think, what's catching a lot of attention at the moment. These companies, some of them, you know, they might only be two, three years old. Even the more established names aren't actually that old. You know, in traditional terms, Uber is not that old. A lot of them are loss making companies. They have huge venture capital funding put into them. And um, we're familiar with this term, unicorn, etc., um, I mean, what types of platform work are there out there? You've given us some idea of the range. I mean, I mean, do we have any idea of where most of it's? Is it the food delivery tends to take up a lot of the media noise? But but is it a lot broader than that? Do you think? Yeah, it's a lot broader. I think a, a helpful distinction is the distinction between uh, what we call crowd work and uh, we compare this to app work. So crowd work is uh, employs millions and millions of people all over the world. And this is where a client posts a job, a task, a gig digitally. And the person who completes the work is also online in the crowd. So they typically never meet. And those types of uh, platforms we can think of Clickworker, um, TopTal, TopCoder and Fiverr, Upwork. These are, are the big players in that arena. And um, this is a really interesting area. This seems to be an area which is growing rapidly and um, it can be contrasted then with app work, which I think most people are more familiar with because we see it in our cityscape every day. So we see people who work for, you know, on-demand in-person services. I might use an app to order food, but it's a, a person who delivers it to me in person. So that's a distinction. Um, I'd say crowd work is definitely uh, the area which has more people engaged. Uh, app work, um, increasingly, we see more and more platforms in this space. Um, and the, overall, the area is growing. Now, you gave me a very good kind of um, 
a statement at the beginning suggesting, you know, a lot of this is, is kind of contingent and it is. So we don't really know how big the, the gig economy is. Uh, we do think that it is growing rapidly uh, from a very small base. And it might be interesting to know that it's only in 2018, for example, Eurofound published a report saying that most European countries at that time, and that's 2018, so quite recently, hadn't really um, gotten around to firming up regulations in this area uh, because it's all very new and these companies are growing and more and more are coming into the market all the time. And one of the things that astonished me in the research for this piece when I knew we were, were bringing you on as a guest and we've been chasing you for a while, as you know, and so because this is such a fascinating area, but what the research threw up was the, the astonishing one for me, the amount of US workers in particular that are involved in the gig economy one survey suggesting that almost a third of American workers has some, have some involvement. It may be as a second job or a, a supplement to their main income. But nevertheless, that's a lot of people sitting in a lot of Uber cars and delivering food and all sorts of other um, goods. So that means that if you know, the US trends continue and come into the European context, I mean, this is only going to grow if you if you take that example, isn't it? I think it is. And I think you're right. I mean, uh, American gig workers are very much the majority of gig workers when we look at crowd work. So that fully digital online area. But we also know, for example, that within Europe, uh, it, it varies hugely how much gig work there is from each uh, country. So, for example, um, Eurobarometer in a report of 2018 said that um up to a third of people in Ireland and in France had been in some way active on uh, labour platforms, whereas uh, when we look at Cyprus and Malta, it falls to about two, three, four percent. So American uh, companies very much. Also, India is an absolutely huge market for gig work, both app work and crowd work. And again, you know, it looks like it's growing, perhaps from a small base, but certainly growing. Now, Anne, we want to put a, a human face to these economic trends, these macro trends. C can you give our listeners any idea of what the working life of a gig worker, particularly the apps part of it that you mentioned, what it looks like? Uh, and we obviously don't want to name specific companies, although I'm sure listeners can append their own names if they want. But in terms of what the, the kind of typical working day or working arrangements look like for a gig worker, can, can you go, kind, of, kind of sketch that out for us a little bit if it's possible? We've talked a little bit about the fact that, you know, gig work in and of itself is nothing new and that app work and crowd work are, are growing from a small base. But I think what's really interesting for listeners is that what's really new and interesting about platform work is this idea of algorithmic management. So algorithmic management is something which really um, influences the day to day work of app workers. Now, if you think about app workers and you think most gig companies right now classify them as independent contractors, um, what makes it a little bit uh, contestable is that um, the platforms use algorithms to manage pretty much their moment by moment activity. So an algorithm just simply stated is a set of instructions to solve a problem or complete a task. And this might be, we need to get that pizza from that restaurant to that home. And we don't have humans involved in allocating these jobs. We have algorithms and the algorithms are programmed to try to achieve this outcome as efficiently as possible, 
to get a, a, a match as soon as you can before somebody ordering food or ordering a cab or ordering a babysitter and somebody responding to this. And so algorithms are becoming a very big feature of, of the lives of these gig workers. So um, algorithms assign work to them. Um, algorithms are also always learning from the feedback they get from customers. So when we give a thumbs up or a thumbs down or a one star or a four star rating, all of that data is, is feeding the algorithm, which is making decisions about things like, well, who gets the gig and who doesn't? So who gets work and who doesn't? Who is more visible, for example, to clients on a crowd work platform um, is, is the person most likely to get work? And that's all algorithmically managed. Now, I know it's a bit of a mouthful, but this algorithmic management is really very intriguing because algorithms are, are dynamically enabled to do things like tell you what um, price is going to be paid for a ride, or for a food delivery or for any other kind of gig work. It is therefore very dynamic. But the interesting thing is it's very opaque to workers. They don't quite know how the algorithm is working, why they are getting selected or not for uh, a gig. And what are the variables that determine who gets the job? Is it is Are they like almost bidding in their services or is it availability or is it the closest person to the home or what is the thing that you think channels the work to one person above another? Well, that's kind of the magic question for workers, also for regulators, because most platforms don't release the details of their algorithm. Um, they say that this is, you know, their competitive advantage. They have, you know, engineered this and it gives them an edge in the market. So we don't quite know. But what we do know from research is that workers, because they don't quite know how the algorithm is working, are constantly having to anticipate this. Um, they get locked in, for example, when the algorithm has over time afforded them, say, a rating of 4.6 or 4.7 out of 5. And of course, they're very aware that if they drop down below a certain rating, they will either be deactivated from the app or... If it's online crowd work, they might just be made less visible to the algorithm. And so gig economy workers, over time, they get locked in by their online reputations. And these online reputations feed the algorithm, which designs whether or not they get work or not. What we do know is that it isn't a, a straightforward, um, the worker is closest to um, the restaurant or the workers closest to the passenger, there are definitely other metrics going in and the data is constantly being refreshed. So it's, it's one of the trickiest things about looking at decent work in the gig economy. Uh, algorithmic management is clearly influencing working lives, but we don't quite know how they work. Now, I'm going to be extraordinarily naive here because I know you know a lot more about this study than me. So so bear with me on some of these questions. But one, one that kind of arises is we do have a minimum wage. So does that play any part in regulating how this go this activity goes on? I mean, you, you know, there should be a, a floor there. Or is that just kind of almost, you know, irrelevant to this type of working in, in your experience? Well, it's currently um, not very relevant for these workers because... The interesting thing is that most platforms classify gig workers as independent contractors. So they actually have no employment contract, no employment relationship, 
and therefore they don't have access to employment-related legislation and regulations. And this is something which is changing absolutely rapidly at this moment. You've already mentioned Spain. Spain has declared that gig workers should be classified as employees. And what we know is happening in Spain at the moment is that platform gig companies are now looking at ways to fulfill the requirement uh, laid down by um, the Spanish government. And they're experimenting with, or at least proposing different ways to do this. So for example, would they outsource all of that labor to a particular contract company? Or will they work with temporary employment agencies? I think um, a good example of this, which is slightly closer to home, is the UK Supreme Court who decided or, or upheld in February of this year that um, Uber drivers who are um, currently classified as independent contractors should be given workers' rights. And this would include entitlement to minimum wage, holiday pay and breaks. And the reason why the UK Supreme Court made this decision is that they they found or they decided that um, these drivers were very tightly defined and controlled by Uber and couldn't really be considered self-employed. Now, right now, Uber has said that they will um, obviously look at that decision and figure out ways to implement it. And um, this could mean that uh, workers in the United Kingdom who, who work for Uber actually get minimum wage. But probably the bigger question that arises there is a minimum wage based on what time. So one of the big features of gig work, either in crowd work, so all digital online or app work, is the amount of time that workers spend waiting for a gig. And this waiting time is typically not compensable or is not paid for. And so I think that We'll see a lot of debates in the next year or two about what does a minimum wage mean for a gig worker? Is it a minimum wage for the hours they're actually activated on the app? Or will the time they spend waiting so that they can respond on demand also be considered? And these are definitely important questions to keep an eye on at this time. Now, our conversation at this stage of the podcast, Anne, has been mainly centred on the workers. Let's talk a little bit about the companies, if we can. Most of these companies I mentioned in my intro, they're very new. Some of the brand names are unfamiliar to us until they move into the market in question. A lot of times they get good publicity because they're described as being disruptors, taking on sort of embedded incumbent companies and creating new business models. So they, they do get a favourable shout from that point of view. But as you say, equally, you know, there's been massive controversy over their um, the way that they um, hire and contract and engage with workers generally. So what, what do you think is going to happen there? I mean, some of them seem to be more open to change than others. Others seem to be running scared of reform. I mean, there's obviously a mixed bag. Some are more advanced. You know, there, there could be several years in existence and have built up structures that allows them to be more fair with these workers that they contract or engage with. I should use the word as a better word. What, what do you think of it from the company point of view? Where do you see them going and, and what do you think their objective is? Is it just simply maximizing profit or is there something else going on about brands and how they want to behave more ethically? Well, what's your own balance between optimism and pessimism about the companies themselves? I'm pretty optimistic. I think there's nothing intrinsically good or bad about gig work, uh, also platform gig work. I think that the benefits of gig work can be enormous 
and um, platforms greatly reduce the cost of workers and people who want their services um, meeting and transacting with each other. Platforms can make things extremely efficient and they can take away a lot of frictions in the market. Uh, platforms also give access to work for people who until now would have found it difficult to find clients for their services. Um, and so in their aggregating of fragmented markets, platforms can do really incredible things. Um, the question I would have is, you know, whether a platform business model is economically viable. Is it uh, offering a service which is capable of delivering value to customers, uh, profits to owners or investors or shareholders, however they're governed? but also decent, safe working conditions for people, at least meeting minimum regulations within their jurisdiction in terms of, of safety, minimum wages. So in that case, you know, if platforms can, can meet these requirements, then they can do amazing things. And we know that it is possible to have decent work in the gig economy because some companies are already doing it. Um, for example, there are platform cooperatives. There's a cleaning platform in New York called Up and Go, which is a cooperative of um, those who offer house cleaning services. And what's very interesting about that platform is, unlike many platforms, they invest heavily in training, in security, in, in job security, and in, in also security and safety for um, the gig workers. And the reason they can do this is that they are not afraid of misclassifying workers as employees. And so they can offer all of these kind of richer services to workers. Um, I also know of, you know, a union taxi um, uh, a company in Denver, Colorado, which is also driver owned as a cooperative. So when you look at the typical sectors like food delivery and ride hailing and, and house cleaning services, there's nothing to stop platforms from having decent work where workers are looked after and not just shareholders. Um, the question for those models will be, can they, you know, can they grow? Can they get big enough? And they, of course, lack the massive investment that some of the other platform companies have from shareholders. So I think that there are some, some, um, you know, challenges ahead in terms of balancing interests in this platform ecosystem. And uh, while there is nothing inherently good or bad about platform work, um, there are models which are more or less beneficial, certainly for workers. Now, we can have cause for optimism. As I often say, when we, we talk about these issues on this podcast, we don't put children up chimneys anymore. So, you know, the general direction of travel when it comes to employee rights has been a progressive one. If you look at a very long time span and um, we hope it happens sooner rather than later, obviously. But I suppose what the economists might say is the two things that might impact this area. One is, you know, supply and demand in the labour market. You know, those who are being hired for work, you know, can push back against some of these poorer conditions by by the, the, the sheer lack of numbers. There's not as many people out there to take the jobs. Um, that's open to debate, but let's put it out there. And then the second piece is if workers themselves organize and come together, they have better pricing power with the likes of the Ubers and the Deliveroo's and so on. We won't go through all the full list of names. Do you think um, we can have as much regulation as we want? Do you think the other piece we need to look at is 
is workers organising and how that might affect some of the issues that you're talking about today? I think you're right. I think the direction of travel is towards supporting workers in the gig economy to come together and fight for better rights. And so, for example, the Supreme Court decision in the United Kingdom was driven by union activity in the United Kingdom and um, years and years of court cases and appeals where um, uh, the unions were, you know, making the argument that that workers require employment rights. I think the other thing is um, we we have, for example, in many uh, countries, a fairly stark distinction between an independent contractor and an employee. And I think the regulations, of course, um, they don't quite fit a model in which people are treated as independent contractors, but because of algorithmic control, they are quite dependent on platforms due to those lock-in effects I spoke about, but they're also quite dependent on platforms in, in, a, you know, in how they do their work and in all of the ways they have to conform to what the platform works if they want to stay on the app. So I think that the regulations um, will also have to be in some ways dynamic and able to accommodate a growing body of workers who don't quite fit neatly either an employment model or an independent contractor model. That said, uh, we do have regulations. They could be applied in this space. I just think that we we have to figure out how we're going to do it. And it does mean, you know, complex discussions about what is working time. You know, should the time that gig workers spend searching for work, maintaining vehicles so that they can do work and, and waiting for gigs, um, should this time be uh, something that that uh, platform companies should also pay towards or should it be fully the risk of the worker? So uh, regulations, yes, they are there. Um, they can be looked at. Kind of interestingly, um, in, in the last few weeks, the Biden administration in the US have, you know, said fairly clearly that they think a lot of gig workers should be classified as employees. I know within the European Union, there are some and discussions also at that level about platform workers' rights. So I think we are going to, we're, we're in a catch-up phase in a way, regulators, unions, we're in a catch-up phase to these um, new types of technology-enabled work. But I think there is a definite direction in which we're likely to see more regulation and hopefully more discussion which takes into account um, the experiences of workers. I mean, we've seen on the streets of Dublin, you know, delivery workers coming together because there has been um, some bad incidents, very bad incidents of assault and so on on them. Uh, and we don't want to discuss that today. But is there a sense uh, from where your vantage point of the early stirrings of organisation by the workers themselves, not just in Ireland, but elsewhere, coming together. So do you think that's going to be a relevant part of the story over the next three or four years, do you think? Absolutely. And I think that they're, they're much more than early stirrings. I mean, there are really strong movements and they're really grassroots movements and they make heavy use of social media because one of the interesting things about, let's say, uh, ride hailing or food delivery or grocery delivery gig workers is they're they're very um, disaggregated. They don't have a home basis, so there are, it's difficult for them to come together physically. Um, 
we do see all over Europe, all over all over the world, really, that gig workers can offer each other kind of solidarity and community, uh, even though it is quite difficult. And social media is one of the places where gig workers really have started to come together. Um, they organise campaigns. They There have been uh, strikes and demonstrations uh, only this week and last week, for example. So you're absolutely right. And I think another thing um, is that some platform companies have started to recognise how possibly lonely and dehumanising gig work can be. And they're starting to offer things like a, a home basis where um, for example, delivery riders can come together and they get dispatched from there rather than being dispatched um, from anywhere. So more than stirrings, it's it's already actually happening. But we have a ways to go. Now, let's pull out a, a, a wider lens on this, Anne, because a lot of people listening will say, you know, the, these individual measures are important, but together they may not add up to a whole lot. But what I want to discuss is can gig working be made fair overall? And, and the word fair means a lot of things to a lot of different people. Uh, I get a sense, you're the expert, but I get a sense from the debate on gig working, it's quite divisive. There's one group of commentators that suggest this is a new innovative business model that gives people who a chance to get work who might not otherwise get work. Then there's another group on the other side who says this is just pure, raw casualization. It's, it's undermining of the traditional contract between employer and employee. And, you know, there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of meeting in the middle between the two schools. But do you think we'll, we'll get to a stage where, you know, these jobs will be made fair? They'll come to a level where, you know, society generally will accept them as socially, you know, equitous. Do you think we can get to that point or are we wasting our time completely and that we need to look at the more traditional form of employment and say that's where we kind of, need to place our emphasis that these are only going to be tinkerings. It'll never really reach a stage where, you know, we think of these things as fair forms of employment. Or do you think, no, no, actually, we can get there. It's just going to be a slower journey. Oh, I, I definitely think we can get there. Like I said, I, there is hope for decent work in, in platform-enabled gig work. But I think it really needs a serious focus from very powerful actors, labour market regulators, unions, customers politicians and um, and workers themselves to work with platforms to try to develop less extractive, less exploitative models. Um, I you know, for example, there, there are big platforms who have decided um, recently, like Just Eat, that they are not going to employ uh, gig workers as independent contractors anymore. They are going to have employment um, employment contracts. And I think the big debate is going to be how do we combine flexibility and decent work? And a lot of the debate, this very polarizing debate you've spoken about, has been the idea that, you know, workers in this sector cannot be regulated because they value flexibility more than anything else. I think that if the pandemic has shown us anything, it's that there are ways to combine flexibility with decent work. And uh, why we would exclude uh, people working in this sector, some of whom would be considered quite vulnerable. Um, uh, they, many of these types of jobs are not very high paid. Um, they are workers who have a right to, you know, um, minimum wages and minimum regulations in terms of safety and health. And so some of the developments towards decent work might come from a slightly different direction. There will have to be movement on 
what is decent work and how can we regulate this sector. But for example, um, discussions going on in the EU at the moment around uh, artificial intelligence and its use in employment and work. I think these are also going to have very big effects in terms of regulating this sector because where we use artificial intelligence to make decisions about work, dismissal, payment, um, selection, uh, we, we start to look at workers' rights in a richer way. And I think we might see platforms having some responsibilities from that angle, which also have implications for health, health and safety at work and, um, and respect and so on and working time. So there are a number of different movements and I think they're going in the same direction, which is we will see more regulation and we will see, I think, a changing type of governance away from the very, very extractive um, models which are premised on paying workers as little as possible, which I don't think are very viable or sustainable anyway. Now, one final one before I let you go, Anne, because um, we're heading down to the end of the clock on this one. But a really crucial word you mentioned there were consumers as we all sit inside and eat our pizza that was delivered and pick up our you know garden furniture at the door from another delivery person our books whatever the items are that are pouring in you know it's it's tenfold increase on what it would have been 10 or 15 years ago it seems to be any item can be delivered we even have drones now delivering stuff into some houses so do consumers play a part in this? They've obviously, a lot of consumers are very active in relation to ethical supply chains in the fashion industry. We know a lot about um, climate change and how consumers are driving issues there. I mean, do the rest of us, those who are the the recipients of the goods that a lot of people in the precariat deliver to us, do we need to get active? And even if we do, do you think we can have an effect from what you know of these companies? I, I, I absolutely do. And I think we have a responsibility to have this discussion. Um, we need to uh, make a distinction between people who are dependent on this type of work for their livelihood, for their for their rent, for their children's education, for clothes and food. And uh, I think the illusion that everybody who is working on these platforms is just doing it, you know, a couple of hours a week. I think we have to have a big discussion about this because for those who work in this economy full time or more than full time, and let's remember, they are many of the people who kept many services working during the pandemic, even though they typically did not have any right to sick pay or any kind of um, leave or breaks. I think we, we have a responsibility, as we always have. I mean, in Ireland, we, we agree that there are minimum terms and conditions for decent work. And why would this sector be any different? And if this sector is growing then, of course, uh, responsible consumers also need to be aware of this, which is, I think, why it's great that you're doing this podcast. And hopefully um, people who may not be, um, you know, aware of, of things going on in this sector, you know, might start reading a little bit more or having a look at what those uh, issues are. Yeah. And you're part of that awareness raising. And thanks very much for coming on the podcast. There's a lot of discussions in this that are only starting. We'll definitely be coming back to the subject again. Um, we'll be putting this podcast, as we do all of them, on our various social channels. So maybe that will get some dialogue going as well. You've really put a, a very bright light on a number of these issues. So well done. It's great to see the academic rigor coming in behind these issues and 
and putting people in the place where they need to be informed about all that's going on. It's not just simply taking the goods at the door. There's a whole social discussion that needs to go on here. Well, thank you very much, Anne Keegan, for being on today's podcast. Really welcome uh, your contribution. Thank you so much. It was a, it was a pleasure. Yes. Thanks for having me on.